Hi everyone and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. Today I wanted to discuss a very important topic that is very misunderstood in the horse world and that is the idea that autonomy in itself is reinforcing. For those of you who don't know what autonomy is, it refers to an individual's ability to exploit their environment around them and have like the understanding of cause and effect. If they do one thing, this thing will follow and being able to consent to things and being able to be independent and have choice. It really refers to the ability to have choice in your life and choose what you would like to do and consent to things and not be pushed out of your comfort zone or forced to do something. And I'm sure as you know, a lot of horse training does not, and, and management for that matter, does not prioritize autonomy. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this is I think most horse people vastly underestimate how much lack of autonomy can contribute to unwanted behaviors and how many problem behaviors that people claim the horse needs to be punished for or needs to be worked hard in order to have the behaviors go away, how many of those behaviors are actually the direct result of lack of autonomy and not having boundaries respected and not having needs met. So... I wanted to do a podcast about it because it's kind of hard to explain just in writing, especially since so many of the people who need to hear it probably won't read as lengthy of an article as I would need to really get the point across and explain why it's such a contributing factor to how horses perceive work. Um, So I thought it would be a good topic to do today. So before I get into it, I just wanted to plug some of my own stuff. For those of you who don't know, I'm on Patreon and you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month and get access to behind the scenes stuff of my work with horses, uh, tutorials, training, um, training help. If you do the $5 a month or over, there's more access to tutorials as well as more training help. Like if you want to have access to online calls and consults with me and training questions to ask each month, there's all sorts of that stuff. And there's already 20 plus tutorials listed on Patreon that you can go through, many of which cover the basics of introducing positive reinforcement and the science behind it and just help get a better understanding of how to apply it. So you can check that out at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash S-D-E-Q-U-U-S, S-D-E-Q-U-U-S. And you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month, but the $5 and above tiers provide the most access to training stuff, and I upload tutorials and videos on a regular basis. Also, I still have some bridles left in stock. We are selling out fast, and we likely will not receive a restock prior to Christmas. So if you're interested in getting a bridle or any of the clothing that I have available, I would recommend putting your order in soon because we are selling out of certain products um, and have already started to sell out of certain sizes. So you can check out my shop at shopmilestoneeq, shopmilestoneeq.com. Um, and also I have released a book. It's been a busy month for me. It's my first novel that I have completed and had published. So I'm very excited about it. It goes over a lot of the types of stuff that I talk about in my podcast, but talks about my journey of getting to that point and like how my mindset ultimately shifted and talks a lot about like where I started out in my writing career and the difficulties that posed for me in terms of 
changing the way that I did things. So you can check that out on my website, milestoneequestrian.ca, and there's a page um, that says new book, or you can go directly to the link at milestoneequestrian.ca slash my hyphen book. And the links will also all be down below in the description. It's available on Kindle or as a book to order through all sorts of different um, uh, like book stores and online uh, order places. Um, and they're all listed on my page on that website. Okay, now let's just jump right into things. So the reason why autonomy is so important in horse training and horse care is because I think historically horses really have not been allowed to have much in the way of autonomy, if any autonomy. And this isn't even just remarking on just training. Like for example, the average horse at a boarding facility is probably going to be in their stall for at least eight hours a day. And that's on the low end of an estimate. A lot of boarding barns have horses in stalls for like 12 to 18 hours a day. Um, even getting like 12 hours full-time turnout is a little unusual, especially through the winter. So even the sheer act of stalling your horse removes autonomy from them. They have way less options to self-entertain and if they're on like a set feed program where they only get fed like two flakes per feeding at set times and then they're eating up all that hay before they get access to the next feeding, they're also going hours without forage, which is a behavior that they spend the vast majority of their daily time budget doing. So if they can't do that, it's, it's inherently stressful for them. It's a behavior that they would defer to in boredom especially. So if they're not able to forage, there's very little for them to do in a stall other than just kind of stand there and be bored. So stalls in themselves remove autonomy from horses. You can try to improve on the level of autonomy your horse has in a stall by like adding enrichment in the stall. So like a slow feed hay net, different types of toys and things that they can play with and get like a guaranteed result. So for a toy, for example, like a treat ball, they learn that when they roll the ball, treats fall out. So it gives them um, influence over their environment because they get to play with this toy and have a consistent result happen. And it's the same thing with like a slow feed hay net. If the hay net is there, they're able to forage and they have the autonomy to engage in these natural foraging behaviors. Um, now, with like stalling and management components, I would personally, like this is like my personal opinion, it's not necessarily something that's been like studied in depth, but the level of autonomy that traditional horse management practices remove from horses, I think is exceptionally damaging. For horses who exist in those types of management environments where they'll be isolated for long periods of time from other horses or have virtually no access to other horses whatsoever, in addition to being stalled or turned out in very small areas, it can be really, really impactful on their mental health in a negative way. And this can in turn create a lot of problem behaviors and aggression and issues under saddle that will arise that are largely caused by the management. And the problem with management is like, when you look at how a horse will spend their day to day, the vast majority of their time that they're going to spend is going to be in their management situation. They're not spending hours and hours and hours a day training. So even if training in itself is forceful and doesn't allow for autonomy, 
at the very least, it's probably only going to last for like an hour each day, maybe two hours, probably even less than that on average. So it accounts for a very small portion of the horse's life, whereas management is basically how they always exist. So I'm sure as you can imagine, existing in a circumstance where you cannot engage in behaviors to self-entertain, you can't socialize, you don't have access to food when you need it, and you cannot leave the area you're in, in addition to that area being very small. It can be a very frustrating and stressful environment to exist in, especially for an animal like a horse that is meant to be covering so much ground each day and exploring and foraging and being around other horses. So. The amount that management can impact how your horse behaves is vastly underestimated in the horse industry and a lot of problem behaviors that people experience under saddle and in their handling of horses are often blamed as a training issue and like referred to as a problem that needs to be trained through when a lot of these behaviors arise as a direct result of poor management. So when we're looking at horses with severe behavioral problems, the very first place I'll look is the management um, because it, it just is such a contributing factor to their behavior. The nicest horse on this planet could turn into a vicious, aggressive, biting, angry horse that no one in the barn likes if their management becomes so stressful that they can't cope without being that way. So... It's, it's one of the main things that should be on the list to consider when you have behavioral problems arise. Like, for example, like a chronically spooky horse under saddle, m most of those horses that I've met don't get turned out enough. And when that's addressed, it almost completely resolves the issue without having to do any additional training. Of course, desensitization and stuff and building confidence is important in training for sure. But if you have a horse who is so keyed up due to their lack of ability to self-exercise, self-entertain, and move around, you're never going to be able to fully out-train that because it's an issue that it stems from their management and their everyday lifestyle that takes up way more of their time than your training does. And it also means that when you start your training sessions, you're bringing out a horse who is going to be chronically overstimulated and far too excited and full of energy at the beginning of any every training session, which means that you might have certain aspects of your training program that are basically just being spent trying to relieve excess energy from the horse until they're actually able to focus and retain the information you're trying to teach them. So I would check management first, and then the next thing to check after that would be like physical comfort and check for like any underlying pain. And the problem with like pain in horses is that there's a lot of issues that can cause horses discomfort that aren't necessarily going to be able to d be discovered in a vet exam. Even in quite in-depth vet exams where you're doing like lots of imaging and stuff, there are things that can be causing horses pain that cannot be imaged in a conventional way. Like there's a lot of issues with lameness that might need an MRI to be diagnosed or might need a bone scan, and they're not going to be able to be caught with just ultrasound and x-ray. And that aside, a lot of people's vet exams, since vet care is expensive, don't really go as in-depth as what you may need to to fully try to get to the bottom of a behavioral issue because a lot of owners don't want to pay for that, especially if they're of the mind that the issue is related to training rather than discomfort. But a lot of problem behaviors can be the result of pain. Like I would say all of the problem behaviors we see in management 
are largely caused by emotional pain. And it can also be physical if they're getting like ulcery or stressy and getting stomach upset because of that or discomfort due to the lack of ability to move around and circulate their bodies, um, discomfort from their muscles having to stay stagnant in one area for lots of time. There's a lot of underlying reasons, but pain in itself, the not discovering a direct cause does not mean that your horse is not in pain. Uh, for example, Milo is like probably the best example I have for this because out of any of my horses that I've ever like done heavy duty, heavy duty diagnostics with, he has come up clean time and time again in imaging. Um, and the lack of findings on imaging when we do diagnostics did not mean that he wasn't in pain. His pain was still very real to him. It was just caused by things that hadn't yet induced enough damage for us to capture it on x-ray or ultrasound. With an MRI, we did get to see some of it, but again, largely his issues were caused by um, his hooves and his overall body posture and how it was impacted by the dysfunction in, in his hooves. And it wasn't something that gave you like a clear answer where it's like, okay, he's injured his deep digital flexor tendon and that's what's causing these issues clearly. No, like it was the result of a lot of underlying factors and a horse like Milo is a lot more communicative about his level of discomfort. So he's less likely to mask it in comparison to other horses. So this meant that for him, his degree of discomfort could have been something that a lot of horses would have been willing to mask and just work through, but he wasn't. And my lack of ability to find answers didn't, doesn't mean that his pain was any less relevant. And now we're on the right track with that for sure. And he's feeling a lot better, but I think that's a really key point that people need to take away is that most horse people don't want to put the amount of money into diagnostics that you would need to to find a clear clear answer and even the ones that do it doesn't necessarily mean that a lack of findings means that there's nothing wrong with the horse so this is why it's really important to watch behavior in horses and kind of play detective and try to get to the bottom of why they might be behaving a certain way because we can only go so far with diagnostics and diagnostics won't necessarily account for like emotional pain or pain that's from like severe trauma or turmoil from being in a less than ideal circumstance. So those are all things to consider. And again, like I would say some of those come down to autonomy as well, because pain will make horses unable to interact with the environment in a way that they would like to. And it can be very, very frustrating for them and they can outwardly react because of that because the pain itself is removing autonomous behaviors that they would otherwise engage in. So autonomy is a huge, huge thing in animal training. And I know when we get started on this, a lot of people who aren't quite there yet in like understanding like behavioral science get kind of defensive and they'll be like, oh, well, do you just let your horses do whatever they want then? And that's not really the case. So stay with me when I start talking about this, because it's not just that you give your horse free autonomy to like run people over or kick people in the face. It's the fact that when you start to listen to your horse more and give them autonomy, 
they don't feel the need to react as loudly as they would when they're used to not getting listened to. A lot of the really aggressive, explosive, dangerous behaviors we see in horses are a direct result of earlier behaviors being ignored, 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 and then eventually the horse can get so frustrated and stressed to where they will start to react violently from very, very little and start to be aggressive right off the bat with very, very little provocation because they're so used to having their boundaries overridden and having people push them into situations that they're inherently uncomfortable in. And then their aggression gets inflated because of that. So giving them autonomy can actually reduce a lot of these unwanted behaviors, if not completely solve them, because it allows them more clarity in their environment and it shows them clear cause and effect. So that's a really important aspect of horse training, whether you use pressure and release or rewards-based training. Making training very, very clear and consistent to horses and making like what the correct answer is very, very clear and having it be consistently the same is very important because it limits confusion. The problem with pressure and release as a training method, I would say, is that from person to person, pressure is going to be applied differently. Even from day to day, like if you are sore one day and your muscles aren't feeling it as well, you're likely to apply pressure slightly differently than what you would on a day where you're feeling your best. So it, it creates a lot of nuance in training that can be confusing to horses and that they might outwardly react to. And then they run the risk of being punished for that outward reaction because the rider is assuming that they're misbehaving when really the horse is just being sensitive to imbalances and changes in cues that the rider themselves is not even aware of. So that's why positive reinforcement, I would say, has a bit of an upper hand in terms of providing clarity to the horse because first of all, it shows the horse clearly what the correct answer is. And then also you're teaching a bridge signal, which is like the clicker sound or like a tongue click, like, or like a yes. And you're linking that verbal cue to a reward. So it makes it very, very clear which behaviors you're reinforcing in addition to what the right answer is. And it's always the same bridge signal. And you're always giving the bridge signal immediately when you see the behavior that you desire. And then you're slowly shaping those behaviors towards the end goal. So there's a lot more clarity to the horse for what the right answer is. And when they do give the wrong answer, there's less risk involved because they just get ignored. They get negatively punished, which is when you do not provide them with what they seek, which would be the reward. So it's very clear to them because when they're not doing the right thing, they're not getting reinforced for it. And then that gives them more incentive to seek out what the correct thing to do is. So they're more likely to trial new behaviors because of this. And the ability to do so also allows for more autonomy because there isn't an inherent risk in giving the wrong answer. And there's a lot of incentive for them to give the right answer. So it gives them freedom to engage in a lot of different behaviors in an attempt to find the correct answer while making it very low stress and reinforcing, especially if your reinforcement schedule is correct for the horse. It can definitely get frustrating and it can create aggressive behaviors if it's not accurately applied. But when it's applied well, the clarity that it provides to the horse is few and far between. Like, I don't know any other method of training that you can really compare the clarity to because 
pressure and release, even just the sheer difference in how the pressure itself is applied and the level of intensity of that pressure from rider to rider or from day to day will vary. We are not accurate enough to consistently apply the exact same amount of pressure for a cue. And from person to person, there's going to be differences in body strength and ability to do that that can be confusing. So pressure and release allows for less autonomy by default because first of all, it is less clear to the horse what the correct answer is since the only reinforcement is the relief of an aversive pressure. So what this means is that if you're trying to like teach your horse how to carry themselves in a frame, for example, it'll be like a lot of half halting, give and take, give and take, giving and releasing. And then when they get the right answer and they get that release, they often don't stay there for very long and they'll need to be checked again until they figure it out. And it takes a lot of repetition for them to figure it out. Whereas I find it takes way less repetition to teach horses the same behaviors with positive reinforcement because there's more incentive in it for them to look for the correct answer, which makes it so that we basically don't have to walk them to the exact correct answer. They start helping us and they meet us halfway because they get a reinforcement. On top of that, pressure and release Again, this varies from person to person. The level of pressure and like the level of escalation of pressure that the trainer is willing to engage in can also make pressure and release start to feel punishing to the horse. So for example, a horse who's being halter broke, if they don't respond to the pressure and the trainer is just leaning on the rope and just pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling, and the horse is resisting it and not giving, first of all, this is going to be stressful because it's going to be uncomfortable. There's no clear right answer to the horse until they start to give that right answer and it's just less comfortable for them. So that's where people might apply pressure from behind to send a horse forward, which might be scary because they'll feel trapped between a rock and a hard place because they don't find the pressure on their head to be comfortable and it might be confusing for them, but now they're being chased from behind. Or similarly for a horse who is lazy to ride, a rider who wants to get it forward, they might add leg initially, but if the horse resists that, then they might put a spur on or give it a, a smack with the whip. And this can feel punishing. Like for a horse who is resistant to transitions, if they get smacked every time they're resistant, transitions are going to be inherently stressful because there is a reinforcement um, history of them being put in a situation where they're inherently uncomfortable consistently for the same type of cue. Um, on top of that, when pressure is escalated, the horse really doesn't have much in the way of autonomy because pressure is continuously escalated until the horse finally gives the answer that the person is looking for. And then once they give that answer, all they get is relief from that pressure. So it's less incentivizing for them because all they're doing is escaping discomfort. But also, if they choose to try to say no, oftentimes they're just pushed and pushed and pushed until they finally say yes. So that's not really a true yes. It's a yes under duress. It's a coercive yes. Um, and it's not really a yes. Like, there's not actually consent involved if they have to be pushed past a certain point to give that response. Um, and I'm not anti-pressure and release by any means, but there are a lot of flaws in the application of it and horse training that we need to examine because if we do that, we can 
improve the horse world a lot and improve training for horses and humans and make it safer for everyone involved. So I think it's less about trying to protect pressure and release to the point where people don't want to hear any criticism of it because they get defensive and more about talking about how we can improve our application of it and the general industry standard application of it to be kinder to the horse and more clear. And in my opinion, I think that that starts to look like adopting more rewards-based methods. And I know that a lot of people who are like positive reinforcement purists would frown upon this statement, but I do think that adding any positive reinforcement to a training situation at all, in most cases, will improve the welfare of the horse, even if they're also still being trained with pressure and release. I think that mixing the two and doing like the quote-unquote balanced method is kind of the bridge that a lot of people need to cross before they're more comfortable using more and more positive reinforcement. And I think realistically, that's the way to start improving the horse world because it'll allow people to start applying positive reinforcement in smaller training aspects and in ways that are easier and make the most sense to them. And then when they see the results of that, they'll likely start using it more. So for the horse, I think it provides more clarity because first of all, it shows them this is the correct answer. And that provides more clarity in training because it's incentivizing them with an external reward and showing them exactly what the correct answer is. And the use of like a bridge signal linked to that food reward also makes it easier for the rider to verbally reward the correct behaviors even in the absence of food and have that verbal cue have a lot of reinforcement of fun rewards behind it so that the horse will get a positive feeling simply just from hearing that sound. Um, and yeah, so autonomy in training is important for human safety as well. Like a lot of people view autonomy, like giving horses autonomy as letting them get away with stuff. And then there's this mindset that if you give them too much autonomy, they're never going to want to participate in training and they'll just walk all over people and be pushy and difficult to handle. And in my experience, that's really not the case. And I think that that concern stems from the fact that so many horse people are used to having to coerce horses into doing things and when you're constantly coercing them and providing them with no outside incentive to want to do what you're asking then yes if they have the ability to avoid doing the thing they will seek that out because the task itself feels unpleasant to them and there is a history of training being inherently stressful and unpleasant or coercive for them so yes they're more likely to avoid that but when you give horses autonomy to walk away in training, especially when you're using rewards-based methods, the act of doing so will start to reset how their brains think, especially for a horse who's used to have being used to being trained coercively. So being able to walk away and kind of mentally reset can be really, really good for training, actually, and the act of doing so can make it more likely in the future that the horse will choose to stay with you for that training session. So, for example, if you're training with positive reinforcement and the horse walks away to go check out something else and you just wait, a lot of the time they come back because you have rewards and reinforcement. And then when they come back, you reinforce the act of coming back. And then you try to structure your training sessions so that you're ending them before the horse chooses to walk away or that you're giving more breaks so that they have less need to walk away. And over time, what you'll find is that they walk away less and less and less. And this is something that I found with my Mustangs. It is really tempting 
to try to force myself closer than what they were comfortable with, especially in the beginning because I had to maintain such a distance to them. And it felt like initially it was taking so long because laying that foundation of trust is what takes the longest. But the act of letting them move away from me when they were uncomfortable and them being able to flee from me actually has been beneficial to me, even if it means that they're choosing to extend space a lot in the beginning. And the reason for that is because if they're overwhelmed and scared, but they have the ability to self-regulate by leaving the situation and going to wherever they feel the most safe and then reapproaching the situation by choice, it doesn't make them feel trapped. And horses who feel trapped are inherently afraid typically because they're flight animals. If they feel trapped and coerced into doing something or completely like forced into doing it, they're going to be more anxious. And when they're anxious and on edge, you're also more likely to get reactions to other things that aren't related to what you're training. So like sounds, other types of stimuli that might spook your horse. When their anxiety level starts to climb, it makes them more likely to react to everything. So in letting my Mustangs choose to seek space away from me, I made it feel safer to be around me because they knew that being around me doesn't mean that they're going to be trapped in my presence and not be able to get away. And the realization of that and the realization of the fact that they could just choose to leave at any point led to them being more comfortable in my presence over time because there's no history of feeling overwhelmed and forced. So initially it did take longer, but in training them the way that I have, I can guarantee like I'll say almost guarantee that it'll make them way easier to get just just get a yes from off the bat. And it's going to make them easier to catch. It's going to make them have a more pleasant association with people overall. And they're going to feel inherently safe around people because I'm building a history where they do not feel pushed out of their comfort zone or overwhelmed and where they have the autonomy to leave. And obviously not in every training situation would it be practical to let them have the full autonomy to leave. But it can be as simple as if you're desensitizing your horse to something and they back away, instead of continuing to approach them, honor that backing away. Stop doing what you're doing. You can even back away from them a few steps, wait there, and let them approach you again and then reward that re approach and start over again with the desensitization. What you'll find is that when you're not forcing them in a situation where they have to approach something they're scared of, and when you honor that fear when they show you they need a little bit more distance and a little bit more space, they will be more willing to approach that thing next time if you make it feel safe to be around it. And it's the same type of idea as systematic desensitization for people. When you're desensitizing people to phobias, you don't go full intensity all at once where you're like throwing a bucket of spiders on someone for the first session because that is so aversive and scary that it would likely lead to the person not wanting to go back to the session. You do it in small approximations that at most might make them feel a little uncomfortable but don't do it to such an extent where they feel so uncomfortable that they feel the need to flee. And when you start doing desensitization with horses this way, it really works, but it's one of those things where people actually need to try it to work, and if you have a history of making your horse feel unsafe in training, then you have a lot of legwork to kind of undo the expectation that you're going to overwhelm them because you've built a history of not honoring their fear and of making them feel overwhelmed. So if you have that history with your horse, then yes, you're going to need to do more repetition to show them that you're no longer doing that because you need to help them develop trust in you and what you ask of them. So desensitization, the way I do it to help horses have more autonomy is even if I have them on a line and it's not at liberty, 
let's say we're approaching something they're afraid of, like something that I can't pick up and move. We're walking, 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 but then they stop and they freeze. I'll stop with them. I don't pull them. I try to use as little pressure on the lead as possible during desensitization training. I'll stop them, let them look, and then I reinforce them for the act of stopping and looking because they're choosing to stop and look instead of going and continuing on and getting themselves to the point where they're so overwhelmed that they, they need to flee. A stop is way safer. If a horse stops when they see something that they're concerned about and starts to assess the situation from further away, that is a good thing. And reinforcing that behavior is not going to make them just plant their feet and not want to check out the thing because you're going to reinforce every little step of curiosity during a desensitization session. So the act of reinforcing and honoring that stop when they need to assess something from further away isn't going to take anything away from you as a trainer at all. It's not going to make them less likely to approach the thing because at the end of the day, if they're being reinforced for curiosity and for approaching things that they're afraid of, they're going to have incentive to want to do that. So then what I try to do too with horses, like when we're approaching something scary, is if they stop like that, sometimes I'll just turn them around and we'll walk a few steps back. And then I turn them back to face the thing and we stare at it from further away again and I'll reinforce them. And then I'll walk forward a few steps and kind of stand off to the side in front of them and wait for them to approach me and I click and reward as soon as they choose to move towards me and whatever they're afraid of. And then I let them stop again and then I walk forward again and wait for them to approach me and click and reward. And what this does is it creates a reinforcement history where when they show curiosity and a desire to approach things that they're afraid of, they get rewarded for it. But at the same time, I'm honoring their fear and I'm not using treats coercively and getting them to approach something way quicker than what they need. And the act of letting them stop and look at things or turning them around and walking them further away to wherever their safe zone is and then starting over and coming back, it actually makes it easier for them to approach more quickly because I don't have to fight with them. They offer the behaviors willingly and in honoring their fear and helping them reset, it makes them more comfortable to approach the thing because it helps take away the fear that they're feeling towards whatever the object I'm desensitizing them to is. And then eventually we can walk closer and closer and closer and I'll keep getting them to walk closer, but I'll also turn them around sometimes even if they're keen to go because I know that some horses are so food motivated that they will take themselves closer than what they're prepared for. So if I preemptively take them back to a safer zone, when we start getting closer and closer to the thing, it's once again creating a safe place in training and allowing them more autonomy by like honoring what they're showing me and their communication and the fact that they showed me that they're afraid of this thing. And generally speaking with most horses, I can get them right up to the object that they're afraid of in a single session in doing this. And I get them up there faster than I would if I was just using like a lunge whip and like chasing them forward or chasing them down with whatever I'm trying to desensitize them to. And then on top of that, the next session that I have with them will be hugely improved from the first one because they have had their feelings honored and they haven't been pushed to the point of feeling overwhelmed and afraid. Whereas when you flood horses for desensitization and use a lot of the methods that we see traditionally being called desensitization when really it's flooding, the horse really only has the option to go into a freeze state and just sit there and deal with it. If you're going to keep approaching them until they stop moving, they only have the option to eventually shut down and just let it happen to them. But 
when you're consistently approaching them with something they're afraid of, it's not going to make them less scared. It's just making them eventually realize they have no choice and no control over their environment and that all they can do is stand there and let something they don't want to have happen to them happen. But it's not making them less scared because all you're doing is invading their personal bubble at a rate that they are not comfortable with. And in order to get an animal to be comfortable with something, you need to stay within or just outside that comfort zone and then gradually expand that comfort zone. You can't just freaking hop in a monster truck and go plowing through their wall of comfort zone and just like expect them to be okay with it because you're creating a fearful response. The problem with a lot of ways that people talk about desensitizing horses to things is that it's actually upping the level of fear that the horse feels towards the object. And they're taking that frozen flight response as the win because the horse will stand there rigidly and let them be near them with something that they're afraid of. But it's not actually an absence of fear. So it's a failure to desensitize properly because all you're doing is using a flight response that is freezing as a training method. And it creates a ticking time bomb because a lot of horses will shut down and sure they won't react to things and they'll go into that frozen state and won't react, won't react. They won't react until they do react. Finally, when something pushes them far enough over the threshold that they can no longer cope in that frozen state, you are likely to get an extremely huge reaction that's going to be incredibly dangerous. And that is something that you will never see from horses who have had their autonomy honored in desensitization training. Because they never get their anxiety escalated to such a point where there's that level of release needed. And this is why liberty desensitization, I think, is so good because it removes the ability for people to use certain levels of force on their horse because if the horse doesn't even have a rope on it, they can just leave. And that makes it feel safer for them. But a lot of the big explosions that we see are the byproduct of a horse feeling so overwhelmed and having their needs and the boundaries that they try to set consistently neglected and ignored. And then finally they feel the need to be explosive because they've essentially dogpiled so much anxiety from a repeated exposure to high stress circumstances that they now need to unleash a very, very high profound level of stress. Whereas a horse who is having their stress alleviated by their trainer because their trainer is honoring the fear signals that they see and they're going slow in a systematic way that isn't pushing the horse super far out of their comfort zone. They don't hold on to stress because they're having things put in place to help them alleviate that stress. The entire goal of a systematic approach like that is to lower the level of fear. It's not just to get the horse as close to the thing that they're afraid of as possible. It is to make them less afraid of the thing. The goal is not just to be like, oh, I want to touch my horse with this thing they're afraid of. It's, I don't want my horse to be afraid of this thing when I touch them with it. If you can touch your horse with something while they're afraid of it, they're not desensitized just because they let you touch them. They're frozen and they're reacting in a very, very common response for flight animals. Desensitization is reliant on desensitizing. You are making them less sensitized to the threat of whatever you're afraid of, whatever they're afraid of. And 
to do it properly, you need to lessen the level of fear. So this is why it's important to honor what your horse is telling you because being able to bulldoze their boundaries and get them close to something that they don't want to be close to is not a win if they are still afraid of it. It hasn't accomplished anything other than teaching the horse that they aren't going to have their needs respected and that their anxiety is not going to be listened to and that they're going to be put in situations that are overwhelming to them. So for autonomy in training, that's why the act of letting your horse walk away can be reinforcing for them. And it's not reinforcing the act of walking away. It's reinforcing the idea that training isn't forceful or dangerous and that they actually have control over the environment and that the human isn't the only one controlling everything, that they also get some say in training. And you can still teach them all of the things that you would like to. In fact, you have more lasting long-term results and a safer horse by doing it this way than what you would by ignoring their need as an autonomous being. And if we're truly horse lovers, I do think that we owe it to the horses and ourselves to consider the fact that like what we want to do with a horse on a particular day may not be what they need, the horse that is. They might not need what we would like to do with them on a particular day. They might need something else and they might benefit from some other alternative approach more on that particular day. And we should be honoring that because if you want a machine that you can just take out and do whatever you want with and have the same response every time, then what you're looking for is a dirt bike, not an animal. The entire joy of working with animals is the fact that they have their own individual personalities and that they are sentient beings. And I think that horse training, because of the fact that horses used to be work animals, it has taken on a tone where we believe that horses owe us certain behaviors, even though we do not provide them any incentive to want to give us those behaviors. And honestly, we're not owed anything, especially in a world and an industry where it is so common for horses to not even have their basic needs met, like the need for socialization, need for freedom to express natural behaviors, the need for forage and access to food. A lot of their needs are not met. If you go and look at the five freedoms of animal welfare, a lot of horses in traditional environments, ones that are completely accepted by the industry, do not have these basic needs met. And these are needs that are considered a necessity for good welfare. So when we're not meeting their needs for management and then we're also having these high expectations for like mistake-free learning where we want a horse to be super invested in learning and do what we ask of them on a dime, but we're not providing them any reason to do so other than adding more and more discomfort until they do it. We're looking for responses that we're not curating in our training program. If you want a horse to respond with joy to something and to be delighted to train with you and to want to be involved and to be consistent in their behaviors, incentivize them. I sure as heck would not want to work for free. I love my job and I love what I do, but if clients stopped paying me and I could no longer afford to eat and meet my needs, I would have a different outlook towards what I do. It wouldn't be fun anymore. It wouldn't be reinforcing anymore. That doesn't make me ungrateful. It doesn't make me stubborn. It doesn't make me spoiled. It makes me a smart individual, a smart animal creature that realizes I need to have something be reinforcing in order for it to be worthwhile to me, especially if it's something that requires physical labor on my part. 
and even more so for a flight animal who will defer to conserving energy because they may need to flee from a threat, if we're going to ask them to do these incredible athletic feats, we need to incentivize them better, especially if we're looking for a response that's consistent, that's devoid of flight responses and dangerous behaviors, and one that's enthusiastic. And I think that's one of the biggest issues in the horse world is that so many of these horse people want their horses to love their jobs and they want them to be enthusiastic and they want them to not exemplify any stress or pain behaviors or any aggression behaviors or any frustration behaviors, but then they're not willing to put the work in that they need to do to actually make those things happen. Like, you can't really say that you want your horse to like their job if you don't honor their feelings when they tell you they don't want to do something, and if they're on top of that, if there also is no reward for them. The relief of pressure is not and never will be a reward. A reward is something that you gain, that you want, that you want to seek. Relief of pressure is simply returning to equilibrium to where you were before that aversive pressure was applied. All they are getting is the relief from discomfort. That is not a reward. So if we want horses to enjoy training and do what we ask and not be frustrated or soured, then we need to be better at rewarding them and providing them with rewards that are valuable to them rather than rewards that we believe are valuable. Because a pet or a pat on the neck is not going to be reinforcing enough to a horse who has just jumped a meter 60 course. Unless you have linked that pet to very high-value reinforcers over the course of an extensive shaping plan so that they know that it means that they're going to get rewarded, it's not going to have very much value to the animal at all. And that is just an honest look at the state of the horse world. We, we cannot expect horses to want to do things for us and to not be soured when there is little to no incentive in it for them. And the very same people we see saying that their horses love their jobs and that like or that they want their horse to love their job are typically ones that will go and say a hard no to feeding treats. They'll say, I don't want to have to feed treats or they'll even look down on trainers who feed their horses food rewards and they'll talk about it like it's something to be ashamed of and like it's less impressive to motivate an animal out of the animal's desire to do something for a reward versus motivating an animal out of their desire to escape an uncomfortable pressure. For me, even as someone who still uses pressure and release in my program, it is way more impressive to watch people get their horses to be compelled to do tasks out of their sheer desire to do them for a reward versus getting them to do them because they're being forced to or co coerced to. It, it's way more impressive. And like, honestly, let's even just look at dogs. And I know dogs aren't horses, but there are enough studies showing that horses learn in equally valuable ways with rewards-based training. Most people's dogs would never learn good recall and would never have learned a lot of their core behaviors like sit-stay without a reward. And the vast majority of these horse people we see frowning upon using treats with horses will happily reward their dogs for behaviors. And no, they might still use forceful methods on dogs. I'm not denying that. But generally speaking, all of these same people that frown upon using food rewards and horse training would understand and respect it in dog training because they would realize that it would be very hard to get the behaviors they desire without providing an external motivator that is a food reward. 
So why is it that we have such a strong disconnect between that with horses? Because the fact of the matter is, as much as it sucks to admit this, the vast majority of horses have no reason to like their jobs because they constantly have their feelings ignored. They don't have any incentive to do what they're asking beyond escaping discomfort. And they're used to just having no autonomy and basically having to be a glorified dirt bike and just respond to cues without problems. And then if they do give a problem one time, even if it's just that they're reacting to pain or that something scared them, a lot of times they're punished for that response. So not only are their feelings not honored, but when they exhibit them because they have no other outlet for the stress or the discomfort they're feeling, they might be punished for exhibiting a displacement behavior that serves the purpose of relieving anxiety or discomfort or stress. And when you look at all of those things, honestly, it becomes abundantly clear that we need to do better by our horses, especially if we want them to enjoy the tasks we ask of them in the way that we enjoy doing them. And I've had like a pretty huge mindset shift over the last couple of years. Um, and it has made it so that like, I do not get the same joy out of riding when I have to achieve it through force and solely through force. And I think that's a good thing because I don't think we should enjoy what we refer to so often as a partnership if one side of the partnership is getting no enjoyment and no incentive to enjoy things out of that. And I know it's really hard to come to terms with these things because a lot of us did not really have any choice in how we were taught how to train horses and we're kind of the byproduct of where we grew up learning from. So it can be really hard to have to look at how many years you've put into learning a certain craft and then start to recognize problems within that craft. And I think that's why so many people defer to denial because it's more comfortable. But we all entered the horse world out of the sheer love for horses. And if we truly, truly love them, then sometimes love is not always going to be where you're comfortable, you know? Like, you can't always love an animal or a person, for that matter, while remaining completely comfortable and being able to do everything that you would like to do. You have to compromise. You have to meet in the middle because that is what a partnership is. If you do not compromise with your horse and if you do not provide them with external motivators and if you do not listen to them ever when they are struggling and you just try to force them through that or punish them for it, what you have with your horse is not a partnership. It is a dictatorship. It is not a partnership because the horse has effectively no voice in that partnership. Partnerships require input from either side. And categorically, the way we are taught to handle horses essentially removes their ability to have any input on what happens to them. And that creates a lot of the biggest problems that we see in horse training. And people can take what I say with a grain of salt, but like it is no coincidence that since I started using more positive reinforcement, the amount of situations I find myself in where I'm in danger of a horse trying to bite me or kick me or buck me off or throw me has decreased dramatically. 
Like, I literally cannot even remember the last time I sat on a horse where they had such a big reaction where I actually had to fear for hurting myself. And that is a byproduct of how much less stress they feel when you train this way. So I hope this helped people consider, like, why it might be a good thing to offer autonomy. Because, again, autonomy is not just letting your horse do whatever they want. It's honoring their feelings in the moment. Like, a lot of people have the assumption that, like, positive reinforcement trainers will have horses that just drag them over to the grass. And then they're like, okay, great. Like, this is fine. I'm just going to let you drag people all over the place. No, they don't let their horses do whatever they want. They just work on things in a different way. And even with stuff like that, like, if your horse is dragging you towards food, resisting that pressure and, like, bringing them back and then reinforcing them for coming back, technically you're still using some pressure and release, but it's a more clear and kind way of teaching it. And I'd say that it's kind of in line with the same idea as what we do with dogs. When you have puppies and they grab something that they're not supposed to eat, you do a trade. You trade something that's high value to them and take away the thing that they have. And then it also makes it easier to teach them a drop it cue or a leave it cue. And you can do the same thing with horses. They will be less likely to drag you towards food if there is incentive to stay with you. And Again, this is not about never using pressure and release, but it's about reforming how we consider horse training and how we honor what our horses are telling us and taking their behavior as feedback rather than just an inconvenience to us because the world does not revolve around us. Training does not revolve around us. There are two beings involved when we are training horses and riding horses. And we do need to consider the needs and the feelings of that other being. It cannot just be about us. And if it is just about us, then it's a selfish situation where the person would probably be better off working with machinery because they don't want to deal with the unique problems that arise when you're working with living beings that have minds of their own. And if you don't want to have to deal with those things, then what you're looking for is not a career in the animal industry. And it's not a sport in the animal industry. There are lots of sports that you can do where they're individual sports, you don't even have to worry about teammates, that you can go fast, you can go off jumps, and you're riding a bike or something instead. And you don't have to worry about their feelings then because you are riding a machine. And I think those type of sports would be a better alternative for a lot of the types of people we see in the horse world with their current mindset because it's very, it, it contradicts way too much. And I don't say these things to hurt people's feelings because I truly believe that everyone is capable of having this needed mindset shift to do better by their horse, but it isn't a true love of your horse if you never listen to your horse and if you don't honor their needs and their communication. It's a very selfish love. Like, I don't deny the fact that a lot of people who are very forceful with horses, still love and enjoy their horses, but they enjoy their horses within contexts that work for them. They enjoy their horses when they're obedient. They enjoy their horses when they do what they want them to do. They enjoy their horses when they get to use them for the things that they want them to. They enjoy and love the use of the horse a lot more than the actual personality of the horse because personality includes feedback that you're not always going to like. And... I think that's a key distinction that people need to start looking at because I don't think that anyone deserves to be let off the hook for how their treatment of their horse conflicts with what they say 
of how they feel about their horse and what they say of how their horse enjoys training. If you are constantly disciplining your horse or punishing them for unwanted behaviors or you're struggling with issues like them not wanting to be caught by you or them trying to bite you or pinning their ears when they see tack or showing other types of aggression towards tasks that you ask them to do on a regular basis, those are clear signs that they have negative emotions towards those things. There's no denying that. They have no incentive to display those avoidance behaviors if they didn't have something that they really wanted to avoid doing. And if that's how your horse is feeling and you love the horse and you want to have a harmonious partnership and you want them to enjoy their job, those behaviors should be viewed as unacceptable. Not in that they're unacceptable, I'm going to discipline my horse for them, but unacceptable as in, in a good partnership, these behaviors should not exist. I need to get to the bottom of why they're existing and resolve it because this is an indicator that there is something going on with my horse that is making our partnership less valuable to them. And doing that will be a huge service to all of these people because if they commit to it for even just a little bit, they'll see the difference it'll make in their horses. None of my horses are girthy. None of my horses are hard to catch. None of my horses are what I would call dangerous to ride. None of my horses are aggressive to people. All of them like coming out for training, and these are things that I've instilled in them from my training program, because not all of them like to used to enjoy training. Not all of them used to be easy to catch. Not all of them used to have completely problem-free saddling. They used to have issues with biting during saddling, like Harlow, for example. And with her, I had to treat her for ulcers and then counter-condition that behavior. And honestly, for her, she's a really good example for how much providing autonomy to horses and listening to and honoring their behaviors will improve their outlook on things. Because that mare used to try to bite me or kick me for touching her just about anywhere. And when I started backing off, when she would provide me with warnings, she stopped giving me as um, severe reactions. Like, for example, if I'd noticed like a pinned ear or her nostrils tightening and I stopped doing what I was doing or did it a little bit lighter or paused for a moment, she stopped pretty quickly trying to bite me or kick me because her earlier warning signs were being listened to. And then from there, now I can do things that she definitively doesn't like, like cleaning wounds and have her not even so much as pin her ears at me or do anything. Like she'll stand there at liberty and let me do it. And it's because I've honored her, her like communication to me in such a way that now when I do have to do things that she won't like, we have an understanding. Like she knows that I'm not going to push her so far out of her comfort zone that she's not going to be listened to. She has her needs met most of the time. And the same applies for horses with like aggression issues as well. If you start to honor the warning signs that they give you, if you're, if you're like, for example, you're doing up a girth and they're pinning their ears and trying to bite you. If you stop just pulling and like reefing on that girth when they even start to rotate that ear back, even something as simple as that and just pausing for that moment and then gently moving it again and then stopping again if they show you a sign. Even just that, without addressing any other underlying pain issues or counter-conditioning it, can create such a difference in their behavior. 
But if you just continue approaching a horse and continue the intensity of what you're doing and just ignore their warning behaviors, that's where you're more likely to push them to connecting with you and kicking you or throwing you or doing something more severe is because you're not listening to their warnings. And the more you honor those warnings and communicate with your horse and try to make things mutually beneficial to them and allow them to feel listened to and heard, the more able you will be to work with them, even in situations where you may have to like tell them to do something, not just ask, tell. And that's another misconception a lot of people have towards positive reinforcement. They believe that the fact that the horses have more autonomy means that they're less likely to do something um, when they're told to. But these horses have such a positive association with training and people in general and such a trust in that partnership that when they're told to do something, there's little to no resistance because they don't anticipate being pushed well above their threshold of tolerance. Whereas horses who consistently have their boundaries ignored and are consistently forced into situations that they find uncomfortable, they are more likely to react and say hard no's and get super reactive and explosive because they have a learned history of being pushed far out of their comfort zone to the point of being terrified. And then they start to predict those things even with smaller little things that shouldn't elicit that type of reaction. So I hope that provides a good explanation for why autonomy is important in horses and why it can be reinforcing in itself and the sheer act of honoring the behavioral signals your horse gives you and respecting them and changing how you deal with things will change your relationship with your horse. For like way too many people are hitting their horses for like aggressive behaviors like biting, kicking, or even like making mean faces. They'll punish their horses for that, which is even removing the autonomy of being able to communicate. And then they wonder why their horse reacts out of nowhere when they've effectively punished away all of the warning signals. The horse has no choice other than to react out of nowhere when they can no longer take it because they were not allowed to give you warnings. They weren't allowed to give you feedback because it was punished away because you didn't like the feedback you got. And that is like an insane, insanely unfair power dynamic in a partnership. It, it, like it, it can't even be called a partnership, but like that power dynamic where we can, we, we view it as righteous for us to enact punishment on horses and hit them and cause them pain or discomfort or distress or fear because we decide that a behavior is bad, but we will not even let them communicate to us when they don't feel good about something we are doing to them. If we can punish freely and we're going to justify people's right to punish, then horses need to have the same amount of communication because we're not always right. Humans aren't always right. If, if anyone who thinks they're so infallible that they never need correction needs a serious reality check and an ego check because we are not always right. Sometimes we set our horses up for failure, oftentimes, and cause issues that then are punished by the person. And that's not really fair because the horse doesn't get to communicate their feelings. They don't get to physically punish us when we get, when we do something wrong to them. And we're also giving ourselves license to enact physical discomfort on an animal when we see fit. And it's assuming that our lens of seeing things is always going to be correct. And this is why 
justifying punishment as a regular form of training is so dangerous because it gives a very, very unfair power dynamic that is hugely to the benefit of the person and at no benefit of the horse. It's at the detriment to the horse because the horse is just being taught to mask behaviors and get more and more and more frustrated while learning that they cannot communicate how they feel to their owner. And this goes with any animal. Like dogs, for example, if you're working with reactive dogs, you don't punish them for growling because if you do, you're going to create a ticking time bomb that will sit there silently and then all of a sudden lunge and attack people or dogs without warning because they've been taught not to give a warning. And we do that exact same thing to horses all of the time. And then we wonder why we see such a high instance of aggressive horses. Horses are like truly one of the most passive gentle and kind animals you can work with so the fact that there is such a high instance of aggressive behaviors that you see at a regular basis in most boarding barns is a testament to how much we have screwed up our outlook on how horses needed to be trained and handled because we are making one of the most passive and kind and gentle species into an aggressor which takes a special kind of talent because they very, very much do not like being the aggressor. They are flight animals. If a flight animal chooses to fight you, you have fucked up. And sometimes you can fuck up by accident and that's okay, but like it should be viewed as a mistake on the part of the person. Horses who become aggressive are the byproduct of not being listened to almost 100% of the time, I would say. Unless they truly have a screw loose or something wrong with their brain, which I don't think most horses have. I think people use that as a convenient explanation for horses who have been wronged and not listened to for so long that they've become so incredibly dangerous that they're really only suitable for a very, very specific type of professional to do behavior mod on. Most horses that we see and we don't like and that they're dangerous or aggressive are like that directly because of people. The blood is on our hands. Like the figurative blood is on our hands for all of those horses that fall through the cracks and have these dangerous issues. They have been mishandled and it has created an aggressive response to people where they feel like the only way they can defend themselves is by being the aggressor first because they've had their boundaries just steamrolled for years. Or they're just existing in such a perpetual state of stress that it takes very little to set them off. But uh, it all comes back to us and what we're willing to justify and how we handle horses. So the takeaway from this podcast is not that you have to just drop everything you're doing and become a positive reinforcement trainer or like move your horse out of the traditional boarding facility you have um, and immediately like, like change states or move to a different city so they can be out with a big herd of horses. That is not the takeaway. But if you are existing in these traditional environments, you have more of a duty than people who have provided for more of their horse's needs in terms of like socialization, turnout, and forage. You have more of a duty to listen to your horse's communication instead of trying to silence it because they're already having to exist in an, in an environment that is more stressful to them and less fulfilling. So at the very least, they deserve to be listened to and have their communication respected. And if you don't like the way they're communicating something, it is your job to teach them a better outlet for that behavior or address their need for communicating in that way, which is usually from stress, pain, etc. So 
it's not about uprooting the way you do things, but it's reconsidering how you do things. You can still use pressure and release, but if your horse is showing you that they're overwhelmed, instead of continuing to up the level of pressure and get mad at them simply because trainers have told you to do that, take a step back, relax, don't get yourself worked up, work on some emotional control for yourself, and try to honor how your horse is feeling and view your training session as you and your horse versus a problem rather than you and your horse versus each other. It's not a war. You are on the same side and it is your job to lead them to whatever end goal you are aiming for. And anything that occurs in training that is not what you want should be viewed as a reflection of yourself, your training, and your care of that horse. Everyone makes mistakes. Training sessions are not going to go perfectly. There's always going to be mistakes made and there's going to be situations where we're going to go, I regret doing that and I could have done it better. But we need to look at horse communication as a reflection of us and our care rather than as just some unchangeable thing that happens or like as a personality quirk or just like as some horses are just mean and aggressive. No, your horse is trying to bite you for putting on their blanket because they're probably ulcery. Or your horse is trying to kick you when you brush it or cinch it because it's uncomfortable and it has a reason to be uncomfortable in that situation. They are not just like that. They are a byproduct of their environment. We can say this very, very comfortably because with how often horses have been studied in natural settings and how little aggression they show to each other and other animals and how, they, how often they choose to just extend space rather than actually connect with anyone and cause like cause any harm that shows their innate behaviors and their innate tendencies when they show quote-unquote aggressive behaviors in natural circumstances it's largely warnings there very rarely is connection they very rarely actually use physical punishment on each other it's warnings and their warnings are respected by one another typically and then if they're not respected that's where you're, you'll be more likely to see connection and actually see a horse try to kick or bite but generally speaking, they give warnings and they use that to have their boundaries respected. And when their boundaries are respected, they're perfectly happy to coexist and be happy and dandy and not aggressive. We see the level of aggression and problem behaviors we do because of what we enable in the industry. And that will never change unless all of us kind of start to examine the role we play in that and how we can better the lives of the horses we have in their current circumstances. And that just starts with being more understanding. Punish your horses less. When they communicate with you, instead of just getting mad right away and thinking about how you don't like that behavior, think about why that behavior is existing and how you can help the horse to find a better outlet for whatever underlying emotion is causing that behavior or how you can teach them a conflicting behavior that is safer, healthier, and better to engage in and reinforce that. That is how you help them have more autonomy in an environment where they will lack it. Because traditionally in the horse industry, the vast majority of horses are going to be lacking in autonomy in at least some ways, if not for most of their lives. But we can help change the parameters of their management and their training to help them feel like they have more autonomy and to help them feel more listened to and to make it more fair. Because if we're just going to remove all autonomy and then punish away any behavior that is a statement of how frustrated they are, then we are literally treating them like prisoners. Like, 
Like, and, uh, like, prisoners shouldn't even be fucking treated the way they are. Like, I've talked about that in another thing, but, like, I do not agree with, like, the modern-day prison system in Canada and the U.S. It is messed up, and I think that the reoffense rate would drop drastically if we actually took, like, a holistic behavioral modification approach. But, again, society is so fixated on punishing bad behaviors and looking solely at the behavior and the fact that we do not like that behavior instead of looking at all of the underlying factors that contribute and ultimately push a person or an animal to engage in an unwanted behavior that is harmful to themselves or to others. We are far too fixated on just trying to make these behaviors not exist or punish people for doing things than we are on trying to resolve why they did the bad thing that they did. So it's not just the horse industry. It's going to require a huge societal shift as well, which is why I think it's so hard to get change in the horse world because it's compounded by so many other aspects in society on top of the echo chamber that is the horse world. So it's going to be slow to change, but honestly, everyone, you can be part of the change simply just by listening to your horse more. You don't even have to drastically change the way you do things, but instead of being tempted to punish immediately when you see a behavior you don't want, ask yourself why it exists and try to address the underlying cause. Because if you do that, I can guarantee you the behavior that you do not like will go away for a longer lasting time than it will if you just punish it. If you punish it, I can guarantee you they will either intermittently continue doing that behavior on a fairly regular basis anyways, or they will find a different behavior to fill the role of that behavior that you punished away that you probably still will not like. Addressing the underlying cause of something is saving yourself time in the long run by making the issue no longer exist because you've fixed the cause of the issue. The way a lot of horse people train is the equivalent to going in your house, noticing that you have a leaky pipe, and then just like painting over the stain on the ceiling so that you can't see it instead of actually fixing the pipe. That is the equivalent of like what a lot of modern horse training is. Or it's going and looking that you have a broken window and instead of fixing the window, you just pull your curtain closed so you don't have to look at it. And then you complain about how cold it is. If you fix the issue and the the reason why the issue exists, you're no longer going to be annoyed by the issue. But most of horse training that we are taught is all fixated on how can I stop this behavior from happening immediately? Or how can I achieve this thing that I want as quickly as possible? Not how can I achieve this in the most ethical fashion and the most longest lasting meaningful way that will provide me with a really good foundation that will allow me to run into less problems in the future. But it's a huge mindset shift. And until you start having it, it can be really hard to wrap your head around how certain things work or what people really mean when they're talking about autonomy for horses and forced free training. Um, Because a lot of people just view it as like letting the horse do whatever they want. No, you're compelling them to want to do the same things as you. They're on the same side as you. And it makes it very easy to get what you want because they want to do what you want because there's something in it for them. That's basically the gist of it. But Yeah, that's my TED Talk and rant for the day. Um, Thank you for listening. And as always, I appreciate all the support from the podcast. Um, Everything helps. Like anyone who shares my podcast, like comments on it, 
um, sends like it to their friends or like shares my Instagram, my Facebook, my YouTube, any of that stuff, even just liking my posts, all of that stuff helps me continue doing what I'm doing and it helps me get more traction for what I'm trying to put out into the industry and helps me ultimately try to bring the change that I would really like to see because I can just see so many horses and people benefiting so much from it and it just massively improving everyone's overall well-being. And I would really like to see that because a lot of the people who are the meanest in the horse world and who are the most resistant to change are like that because they're just so perpetually frustrated and they've been trained in a way to handle horses that feels like they have no choice either. So they respond a lot like a trapped horse does. And it's sad for me and I would really like to reach those people more. And I think the podcast is one of the more powerful ways to do that because I find that I'm able to talk about things more in a way that maybe will help people make feel less threatened. Um, but that also could just be me being naive because the podcast gets less shares and like visible traction in terms of people's perception of it than what I see on like my posts when people are commenting. Um, but yeah, like I think my podcast let, let people get to know me, my practices and like my thought process a lot more because I'm able to talk about it in so much more detail and I'm hoping that it'll continue to grow so that I can reach more and more people and ultimately bring the changes that the industry needs or like help bring them because the more people that start to do it, the sooner it'll happen because it's going to be like a snowball effect. Once people start realizing it's working, they're hooked, they're sold. That's what happened with me. That's what I've seen happen with so many people in the industry. Um, it's just about get, doing the first foundational legwork where you're trying to show people that it works and trying to change a lot of tradition and long-standing beliefs without making people to feel too threatened, which is very hard because even the sheer act of doing something differently than everyone else makes people feel threatened. Um, but yeah, like, I think that change is definitely possible and I think that the industry has shifted a lot in the last couple of years even. And I hope to see it continue shifting more. And I hope that people find the stuff that I put out helpful. So thank you for listening. And I hope that this podcast gave you some things to consider in your handling and care of horses. Uh, so yeah, if you like my content and what I put out, I am also on Facebook at Milestone Equestrian. Um, I also have YouTube. It's just my name, Shelby Dennis. And I post a lot of uh, vlogs and like tutorial videos and whatnot on there as well. Shorter tutorials as the long ones go on my Patreon. Um, but yeah, check me out there. Sharing my YouTube videos with people is a huge help. I got hacked a couple years ago and it really tanked the amount of views that I got on YouTube and how like and like the consistent viewership that I would get for each post typically. So getting those shared or like even sharing them with like people you know that might need to see that stuff, it shows what I do on camera. So I think that that makes it easier for people to actually physically see it works. And then it's also helpful in continuing to grow my YouTube channel. Um, I'm also on Instagram, S-D-E-Q-U-U-S, S-D-E-Q-U-S. And like I said, I'm on Patreon as well if you want to subscribe for as little as $1 a month or $5 a month if you want access to like all the tutorials and whatnot. Um, and that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash s-d-equus s-d-e-q-u-u-s and yeah there's already a lot of content on there if you want to check it out if you're looking to get into the type of training i do and you want to learn more about it i would say that's the best place to go because that's where 
my biggest database of lessons and tutorials is, and you can also talk to me directly and join in on Q&As and whatnot if that's of your interest. I'll link that below in the description, or you can just type it into your search bar. But yeah, check that out. And then also, the last thing I'll plug again is my book. That talks about my entire journey as an equestrian from where I started from, the things that I was taught, the abuse that I had normalized to me, and ultimately like how I started my shift in how I did things and how I kind of got to where I am now. And it talks about all of that and all of the struggles in and out of the horse world that I dealt with and trying to develop my identity and find out who I was. And yeah, so you can check that out on my website, milestoneequestrian.ca slash my hyphen book, my book. Uh, so yeah, thank you for listening and I hope everyone has a great day and happy horse training.